Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Craig Rochelle Leadership Podcast. I'm really excited because I've got an interview today that is really special. It's about an incredible leader that went from being honestly a waitress at Denny's to creating a company and selling it for $1.2 billion in cash. Before I introduce our guest today, I do want to say thanks for being a part of our leadership community. Uh, if you're new with us, we drop a new teaching on the first Thursday of every month, and we have what we call a leader guide that's really helpful with detailed notes, additional questions. You can cover this with your team. If you'd like the leader guide, go to life.church slash leadership podcast. Click on the link and we'll send it to you each time we drop a new episode. Let me tell you about our guest today. Jamie Kern Lima is a friend of mine. She is the author of the book, Believe It, How to Go from Underestimated to Unstoppable, and she was underestimated her whole life. Her story is incredibly powerful. She built It Cosmetics with over a thousand employees, sold it for $1.2 billion cash, became the very first female CEO of L'Oreal. Her story will inspire you and her wisdom will help you build your leadership. It's my honor today to welcome my friend, Jamie. Hey, Jamie, I have to say that uh, I am probably um, as excited or more excited to interview you than anybody else we've had on the podcast. Welcome to the Craig Rochelle Leadership Podcast. Uh, thank you so much. I am grateful, honored, and super excited as well to be here. So thank you. Well, I've had the uh, honor of hanging out with you a little bit, you and Paulo. Amy and I got to meet you guys at the Global Leadership Summit, and then we got to, be, uh, to spend some time at another event. And what I want to do, Jamie, is I, I want to dig into your leadership journey, which is incredibly special and powerful. And then I want to do what I haven't heard a whole lot of people do is I want to dig into some of the specifics of how you think and how you created what you did. But if you can, if you don't mind kind of starting off a little bit at the beginning, like all the way back, I understand you might have been a waitress at Denny's at one point <laughs> and then uh, started to build something special. Can you give us a kind of an overview of, uh, of how you started your business and, and, uh, and walk us through a little bit of the early journey? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think you and I have talked about this just at a dinner table once, but I really believe our steps are ordered. You know, I really, truly believe that. And there's a lot of people maybe that just know of me as building this billion dollar business. Um, but no, I believe the days I was a Denny's waitress and, and bad groceries at a grocery store and all of those things, like the lessons I learned, the, the, the work ethic, the, the, the understanding of, of people. I think all of those things really um, lead us to to our calling and to be able to even carry the weight of our successes in other areas once once we get them. So, yeah, I think my whole life I've I've always um, worked really hard, and, and I always felt even the time from the time I was a little girl, and maybe a lot of people listening at, and watching us can relate to this. But I always felt like God had put something inside of me, like I was I was destined to do something great, and I believe all of us are, <laughs> and. I spent most of my life actually doubting my own greatness. And it was kind of a journey. My journey really has been one of going, gosh, I feel like I'm called to do something, but I, I'm kind of doubting it anyways. And it was this, um, this struggle. So I remember even the days working as a Denny's waitress. And, uh, and I would have thoughts, Craig, when I was waitressing, <laughs> like, 
how would I run this place? If I were, <laughs> if I own this restaurant, how would, you know, I'd have those kind of thoughts. And it's funny because we had major operational issues in the kitchen. So pancakes would always take over an hour and I was always having customers leave and, and, and not tip because they were really upset. And, uh, I really needed those tips at the time. And so I got, I got pretty good at talking to people and, you know, kind of like, you know, building connections then just trying to prevent him from leaving the restaurant. But I also realized early on, and of course, I didn't realize at the time why I was learning these lessons, but I was like, okay, if I do run a business one day, if I do lead a team one day, you've got to get your operations right. (laughs) You have to get the back end, the kind of stuff that's not very fun to talk about and a lot of people don't enjoy doing. But I remember even learning at Denny's that you have to get your operations right. And so, um, but yeah, I worked at, at Denny's, had all kinds of jobs to, to pay my way through school and, uh, and, and thought, and when I was in college, I started writing for the paper. Um, and then in graduate school as well, I, I'd write for the school paper, even though I went to school for business and I loved interviewing other people so much. And so I thought that's what I would do in my career. And, um, I just loved it. And so when I got out of graduate school, um, I went to Columbia and got my MBA, uh, but I set the record for the lowest salary ever <laughs> out of Columbia Business School, and I took a, a job in a small market uh, television news station for $23,500 and uh, anchored the news and reported and, and, and shared other people's stories, and, and I loved it, uh, and I thought I was going to do that my whole career, and I moved up in markets and I was anchoring the news in Portland, Oregon. And then I had this big, this big moment in my life happen that I thought was, uh, one of the biggest setbacks, uh, professionally that I'd ever had. I, I started developing a skin condition called rosacea, which is hereditary and there's no cure for it. And, um, I'd be anchoring the news live. And, and what started happening, Craig, was that I was, would get, uh, get these big red welts, like all over my face and my forehead. And, uh, so I'd cover them up with tons of makeup and hoping no one would notice, um, until they did. And I'd be anchoring the news live and hear in my earpiece from the producer, uh, there's something on your face. You need to wipe it off. You need to wipe it off. And meanwhile, I'm live, you know, and I, I knew, and I glanced down in the little, the little makeup mirror and I knew what it was. And every time in the commercial breaks, I try to cover it. And eventually I wasn't able to cover it and it would start coming through all the, the broadcasts. And so I went through this, um, Big season where I thought like, okay, God, what is going on? Because I thought I knew I'm in my dream job. This is what I'm supposed to do. Um, you know, and, and so it felt like a big setback happening to me uh, because I, I literally would be anchoring the news live thinking, am I going to get fired? Like our viewers changing the channel right now as I'm talking. And, and, uh, and it was a, a big season of self-doubt. Um, and I started, you know, taking my tiny paycheck and, and trying every makeup product I could find out there on the market and none of them would work. And, uh, and two things happened, Craig. I know I've heard so many of your shows where you really get into detail where people talk about like their, their vision, their mission for their company and their why and the problems they're solving. And what I didn't realize was happening was it was, you know, so often, right. A, a, a big setback is really God set up <laughs> for something we're actually called to do or an impact we're supposed to have. And, uh, and, and what I realized was that, oh my gosh, why, if there's millions of companies out there selling makeup, why can't I find anything to work for me? And then I realized there's no other models out there with this bright red rosacea saying, look, this product works. And, and, 
I had this realization that if I could figure out how to create something that worked for me, it'd probably help a whole lot of other people. So I had this sort of like entrepreneurial spark, right? This idea, that feeling in my gut, like, what if I could, what if I could do it? Um, and then all the self-doubt came in like, oh, but you don't know anything about that industry, the beauty industry of no connections, no money. Uh, you know, you're not qualified. So I sat in that place of having this, this gut feeling like I'm just like God whispering to me, like you're supposed to take this chance. Right. But then my head was like, oh no, but you're in your dream job and you're not qualified. And, and I think, you know, sometimes in life, like knowing when to let go of a dream is also as important as knowing when to go after one. Cause I felt like I was telling myself I was in my dream job, but I kept having this feeling like I was supposed to take this chance and supposed to take this, this risk and, and go after it. And the big thing that did it for me that pushed me over the edge um, was, and I did this early on, and I think um, I, I would love anyone listening um, who's really done the work for their business or their teams or even their, themselves on their why. Um, early on, you know, I, I wanted, of course, to, to create a product that worked for other people, that worked for me, that helped a lot of people. But a big thing happened where I went really deep on that why, and it's what really pushed me over the edge mm -hmm. to take a step out in faith and launch the business. Um, and that was that I realized, oh my gosh, my whole life, like I've seen these, these beauty commercials and I've loved them and I've always wanted to look like them. And, but like deep down inside, they always made me feel like I wasn't enough. Even when I was a little girl, I would see those commercials. And I had this kind of big God-sized dream that partly was like, oh, let me create great product and, and whatever. But it was bigger than that. It was like, what if I could change the whole beauty industry? What if I could put real women, every age and shape and size and skin problem and skin tone and, and use them as models and call them beautiful and mean it? And what if I could like shift the definition of beauty for every little girl out there who's about to start doubting herself and every grown woman who still does? So I had this huge God-sized dream. Meanwhile, I'm sitting there with no money at a news anchor desk getting yelled at from my, you know what I mean? And, but I just felt it. I felt it. I just it's, decided to take a step out in faith, probably because I didn't know how hard it was going to be. Um, but that's kind of how everything started with the, with the launch of, of it cosmetics. So I've got a, I've got a million questions. First of all, <laughs> Jamie, I want to wrap back to when you're sacking groceries or when you're at a Denny's waitress and the, and the reality that you were still looking to make things better. You were studying, you weren't just doing a job but you were, you were a student of greatness. And I can only imagine how many people are listening right now that might be in a place that they really don't like and they'd like to do something else. And I love the fact that your time there wasn't wasted. And yeah. in so many ways, it was preparing you to do what you would do later on. And so I wanna, I wanna drill down a little bit before we move on because I think there are some people probably in a similar place to you. So you had this idea, and I imagine a lot of people have an idea. What I'd like to know is what do, you, what do you recommend someone does next? I'll give you a few thoughts. Do you drill down a vision? Do you create a plan? Do you try to assemble the right people? Do you go out and start an LLC? Do you start pitching it and raising money? When you have an idea, what do you recommend that someone does next to move their idea forward? I love that I get to answer this having made so many mistakes now that I would look back on. <laughs> I'm so excited right. to answer that. And I want to say one more thing if I can, because I just got goosebumps when you said that. 
You know what I realized when you're saying that? And then anyone listening right now, Craig, who maybe they're in a job they don't love, maybe they're, you know, whatever it is, like, I feel like that whole journey, I was in preparation season for, for like what was to come. And I feel like when we look at it that way and any, any season we're in right now, any, any, you know, cause there's so many people that, um, have a big dream on their heart, but they know it's not right yet to take that big step, right? Or they're leading a team and they're like, I don't understand why it's not coming together right now. Or they're having a big setback in their business. When we look at it from that framework of I'm in preparation season and I'm a student of greatness right now and, and, and I'm going to take it all in because my steps are ordered, I think that is so powerful because there's no moments that are wasted when we're in that mindset. And so right. um, I just have goosebumps when you said that. Um, but for anyone who wants to, to like what to do when you're about to take that leap to start your, your business or, or to go after that big idea. So, okay, I'm going to keep it really real. I'm going to keep it really real <laughs> on the show. The most important, here's where I see entrepreneurs right now, um, and even leaders, frankly, because their teams are influenced by this as well. We are in a, in a world right now that is so dramatically different than it was even five years ago or 10 years ago, and especially in terms of social media and in terms of things that people think are important, um, mm -hmm. uh, that they prioritize when they shouldn't. Right. I think mm. so many people launch ideas and fail because they have their priorities wrong and because their egos get in the way. When mm. we launched our business, I had no. So 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 we my husband, and I put all of our savings into it. I had no idea it would be three years, over three years before I could pay myself. Um, I had no idea that I would get hundreds and hundreds of no's and rejection from everyone. And, and when I look back at how, because there was, a, a, you know, everyone sees the outcome now. They see the homepage of the Wall Street Journal and go, oh, mm -hmm. you know, girl, Denny's waitress sells company for over a billion dollars cash. And it just right. looks like a big fairy tale, Right. Anybody who is a true leader, who is leading a team, who has started a business, who has taken a risk, knows is not a fairy tale. Like, and usually mm -hmm. when you make it, it's not an accident. You know what I mean? It's like a lot of hard work. And when I look back at, you know, and I made so many mistakes, but when how we ended up surviving all of those challenging years um, and so many friends I have even and, and people that I adore with their own businesses didn't survive launching their, their companies. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because a lot of people put flash over cash, <laughs> right? They put mm -hmm. things that look really good for their customers or social media or make their employees feel right. like they're in a gorgeous office and all these things. Um, they spend money when they need to be like literally so focused on the bottom line with everything and so disciplined in terms of cash flow. And so the first thing I would say if someone's getting ready to launch, I would protect every penny you can and invest it where it actually matters for the customer and where it matters for the quality mm -hmm. of the product and the vision, not just what looks really good mm -hmm. and what fuels your ego. And that seems like such common sense, but it's amazing how few people do it. Um, it's amazing. Right. In today's culture, it's often image over substance. And, yes. and I mean, you're the person that did it and, and you, you are right. And, you know, we don't talk a lot about kind of 
cash management, or uh, we did one episode on resource allocation. But anytime you see anybody scale any kind of business or ministry up, you're, the way you handle assets early on, it matters so, 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 so much. And I love what you're saying there too, the cash over flash that you have to, you have to, you, you have to steward everything. And you, you didn't pay yourself for three years. So everybody says, hey, there's this glamorous success story. Uh, and I, I, one of the things we say a lot on this podcast is we say that it's the things that no one sees that leads to the results that everyone wants. So yes. we read the headlines about you, but there were hundreds or thousands of personal sacrifices, private disciplines that others don't didn't see. And what I'd like to do, Jamie, is I'd like to hear about a couple of them that, that I would call not headliners, meaning we're going to talk more and I want to hear more about you being rejected. I want you to tell the story about someone being really rude to you and then working for you later on, because I think that's just so much fun. I, I love that. <laughs> I, I want to I hear you about you getting turned down and then being the dominant product producer on the show that turned you down. I want to hear all that. Your resilience is amazing. But there are some things you did in the early years that are not as public, that were private sacrifices that you made, that Paulo made, that were painful. Could you tell me about one or two of those that don't make the magazine article? Yeah, so many of those. And and thanks for asking about those and also about rejection. I think that um, the thing that fills my soul talking about this is I just know there's people that are that are listening or watching this right now that like feel like they're alone in their rejection, you know, because when we're going through it and we, we are, are taking a, a step of faith and putting our idea out there or we're leading a team, right? This is the thing I find. Um, I've had the blessing of meeting tens of thousands of entrepreneurs now in my journey. And so many people feel like once they are the boss or once they are the leader of the team, they're supposed to hide their self-doubt mm-hmm. or they're supposed to like be embarrassed about their failures or their rejections or it's only them. Um, but especially with entrepreneurs that, that take that step out there, you know, in a, in a world where, where everything looks good on, on social media, a lot of people feel alone when it's not working out behind the scenes or when it doesn't feel behind the scenes, like it looks online everywhere. Right. And, you know, you and I were at an event where Albert Tate talked about this idea of being overexposed and underdeveloped. And I've just been obsessed with that idea recently because I think that this is a really big topic. No one's talking about so many people right now who are entrepreneurs, who are leaders, who are, 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 are launching their dream, are in this new world where everyone has direct access, direct to consumer, and everyone can be an expert. Um, uh, everyone can you know, ha- look like they have a great business. And, and so many people right now are overexposed, but underdeveloped. And I think that that is um, a big risk. And so you know, when it comes to the development part, I look at a lot of that as what you're talking about, those early years that a lot of people don't know, those sacrifices that, that, um, that you know, I'm super honored to share because I know someone out, out there needs to hear it and know that they are not alone and, and it is not all glamorous and it's not just them. And, it's, and, and, and I believe, Craig, that no matter how hard or unglamorous the situation or how big the setback or how painful the rejection, I believe it is no, I, I don't believe, I know it is no indication of your ability to succeed. It's no indication of, is your idea going to work or is your company going to make it? Because the more conversations like this that I have with friends, and I love that we're having this one publicly on your show, um, and I've had a, a lot of these privately with people that have built huge companies, 
It happens to all of us, right? We go through massive setbacks, massive rejection, massive seasons of people saying your idea is not going to work. You don't have what it takes. I don't see you working in our industry. I don't think there'll be a demand for this. Um, and just knowing that is it's just so important. And in the early years of building at Cosmetics, I didn't know these things yet. So I spent a lot of nights crying myself to sleep. Um, mm-hmm. You know, early on, we had no money. And um, I mean, no money, no, no, no money. And it was like, we finally, um, uh, we finally, uh, after all the retailers were saying no, right? Because we poured every penny we had into creating a product. And I just thought, if you create a product that's amazing, right? And as long as your product is better than what's out there, and I believed our first product was, it's just going to sell. And I just thought that it would, and it didn't. And I sent it out to all of the the big beauty stores, the big department stores, and every single one of them said no. Um, And some of them, it wasn't just like, no, it was not no for now. It was like, no, forever. (laughs) Like, no. And so, you know, we eventually, I eventually thought, let's go direct to consumer. And my husband, we couldn't afford to hire anybody. So my husband, uh, uh, built our first website. He bought that book, that big yellow book called HTML for Dummies, and figured out how to build our first website. And uh, um, I've shared this story with you, but he, when when our our website finally went live, I thought it was just going to be this massive success. And and the day it went live, we got no orders. And the next day, no orders. And this went on for weeks. And I finally, anyone who works with their partner, I I this is so easy to do, but I'm like, it's broken. You did it wrong. Like, there's no way that this product is so good. There's no way this website's working. We're just getting no orders for this product. There's no way. And then I remember the first the, uh, day our very first order ever came in, and I was, like, screaming and running around our office, which is our living room. Um, and he says, that was me. I placed that order to prove to you <laughs> that our website's works. not broken. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I was just like, oh. And um, this went on for a long time, and you know, we, every penny mattered, every penny mattered. I remember, um, I mean, really mattered. And so, you know, and it went into our product and into our mission and we were teetering on this balance of under a thousand dollars in our bank account for the company and personal combined for a very long time, which meant that if orders didn't keep coming in, like two orders a day, three orders a day, we'd be out of business. Mm -hmm. And it was this way for a very long time. And I remember seasons where I would go to the ATM and just like if I needed $20 and I would hit no receipt because like I couldn't even stomach it. Like, you know what I mean? And it was this constant, are we about to go bankrupt Um, for a very long time? And it's tough when in in those moments, um, uh, oh, and then then one big thing to share, uh, just in case someone needs to hear this today, we, when we finally got on QVC and had been on for a little while, which is a long story I can share in a minute if you want me to, um, but we still, all of our money was tied up in working capital at that point. So we still weren't paying ourselves. We still had no money. And this, I found out this giant competitor um, who was also on QVC and all the department stores, um, they loved the, the, the product. They saw we were starting to have some success and some momentum, and they were huge. And, and I learned that they went to our manufacturer um, and they, they bought, they paid them off to get our formula. Hmm. And 
it was our, so legally we owned it, right? So, but we couldn't afford to sue anyone or do anything. And I went through this devastating season where I learned they're about to launch this exact duplicate of our formula, of our product on QVC and in all the department stores. They were everywhere. And I, I, I was just like gutted and literally physically sick to my stomach. Like every, our, everything we have in our life has gone into this for years. And this product is finally getting momentum and now this huge competitor is going to swoop in. And by the way, their brand positioning, their DNA of, of their company um, is totally different than ours. Like, like our positioning as our company was, you know, was clinically proven products, you know, amazing for your skin, real women. Uh, and theirs was totally different. And I was like, this isn't, this product doesn't authentically fit their brand positioning they just saw this under the radar company getting momentum and thought they can make it big with, with our product. And I guess that's what happens everywhere in business. But, but the lesson in this that I don't think I've ever shared on a show. So I just want to share it. Cause I know so many people are in leadership and business listening to this, or so many people with big ideas or worried about people copying them or whatever. I learned the most powerful lesson of authenticity, probably in my entire life. And this is when we were very small and had no money. Um, and, uh, and, and, and they did knock us off. And then I found out when it's launching on QVC and I sat there and I watched their launch. Right. And I, there was nothing we could do. And this is what's tough about being small is you have no money to do anything about anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, it's painful because no one wins when you sue anyways. And it's just like, um, so, so I worried though, Craig, that they were going to take us out. I worried that they would get credit for this amazing product because we were so small small and they were so big and they launched it on QVC. They launched it everywhere and it just did okay. It just did okay. Meanwhile, I kept getting booked to go on QVC and sell the same product, right? People didn't know it was the same. I knew it was the same. It had a different package, but it was the same formula. I was going on and we're crushing it. Like numbers are huge and they are bigger than us and it's just doing okay. And I was sick to my stomach for months over this until I watched this happen before my eyes. And I learned that lesson that you cannot fake authenticity, that nobody, like customers are smart and you just can't fake authenticity. And this was a product that even though it was a great one, was incongruent with their positioning. Mm -hmm. And um, anyhow, it was, it was a, a big lesson that I learned. And I remember... Um, vowing to myself that one day we would be bigger than that company <laughs> and they wouldn't even think about doing that to us. And, and then that happened and we're so, and, and <laughs> the little company in my living room is so much larger than they are today. Um, and, and one funny thing real quick is, you know, I remember watching, there was a, a message Joel Osteen did on TV where he talked about the bull weevils and he talked about how, um, uh, the cotton crops and coffee crops and farmers were devastated and bull weevils were eating them. Anyways, uh, we were so poor, but my husband made me these t-shirts and he drew an S and a J and a J, like a superhero for super JJ on the front. And then like a little bull weevil on the back. And I literally wore those shirts to and from QVC mm. um, under my coat just to try and stay focused. Cause Craig, I was in the green room with the competitor that knocked me off and with all the other brands. And I didn't say anything to anybody because it doesn't help. Gossip doesn't help. And right. being anything other than professional doesn't help. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I was at war. <laughs> I was at war, but I just knew, I just knew God was on my side. I knew 
I knew that I would ultimately win. I knew I just didn't know how, but it was a really tough season. So when you say, what are some of the scrappy things you did in the beginning? For some reason, those t-shirts just came to mind. And I don't yeah. think I've ever shared that story before. Well, I, 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 love, I love your scrappiness. And, and one of the things I like to do is just try to learn, analyze any story of greatness, any story of success, and, and try to determine and put language on what are the what are the unique attributes in this story. And you raised one, Jamie, that I think is is more true for you than anybody I know and should be true for more business and ministry leaders. And so if we look at your story, one is great idea. Two is great product. Three is great execution. Uh, four, you've got tenacity. Uh, overcoming obstacles. You've got rejection. You've got good business sense. You've got the ability to scale. You're creating the right culture. So we've got all those things that we typically think about. There's an ingredient that I don't hear often, and that is what you said, and that is authenticity in mission and leadership. And what you have is is a very rare authenticity. And the reason I want to drill in on this is because it's not all about systems. It's not all about strategy. It's not all about location. It's not all about ideas. Sometimes you just have to be believable as a leader. And Mm -hmm. you had a problem and you had a solution. And then your problem that you were attacking was bigger than just skin issues, but it was actually kind of a culture that maybe would shame people for not being something that someone else is. And, and that authenticity is one of probably the least talked about, most important tools of great leadership. And in my just humble admiration of your story, I think that's one of the lead lines of the success that I want to highlight and help other leaders see. We say it this way that, you know, be yourself as a leader because people would rather follow someone who's real than someone who's who's right. And you're just that. And I hope that other leaders will see it when they study you. You write about it a lot in your book. I want to hold it up. If anybody's watching, uh, believe it, um, how to get from underestimated, unstoppable, just fantastic. New York Times bestselling book with every good reason. You write a lot about kind of that in there. And I want to drill down into something. I think that there's, who knows how many people are listening right now are working in a company and they have resistance. They um, have an idea and it's getting shot down. They're trying to start a ministry and it's not going well and they're facing rejection. You said earlier, you said it's not all glamorous. I, I would say probably almost all of it's not glamorous. Like there's very little glamorous and almost every great story of success is filled with rejection. I was turned down for ordination. So I'm a pastor and I was rejected for ordination. And almost every story like that has an overcoming rejection. Can you tell us, Jamie, what was one of the greatest points of rejection and what did what is what did what happened internally that kept you going when so many people would have quit? Mm, yeah. Um, I believe I, when we change our relationship with rejection, like we literally can change our whole lives. I okay, think I have that, to stop you. I'm so sorry. I have to stop you. You have to say that again, and I want to let that sink in. Then I want you to keep going. Just say say it one more time. I want our listeners to feel that this is like this is this is worth the whole whole time. Say it again, please, and then unpack it for us. When we change our relationship with rejection, we change our entire lives. Hmm. We change our teams. We change our business. We change. Um, I believe we can never reach our true calling and our true potential and our true greatness unless we literally learn how to change our relationship with rejection. 
Um, and, uh, and when we see it as something that comes with the territory of being a brave one, one willing to go after your calling, one willing to go after your potential, one willing to bet on yourself and, and bet on uh, the vision God's put in you, you're a brave one. And I think that um, when you're going after anything great and anything brave, it comes with rejection. So I've literally in my life, and I still get rejected to this day, <laughs> to this day, right? And like, it, it's so funny, but I, it rolls right off me now, Craig. I, it doesn't hurt me anymore. I see it as like, yeah, it's like a reminder. Oh, I just got rejected again. Yep, I'm a brave one. I'm go. going after it. I am not going to get to heaven one day and be like, God, I lived as half as who you made me to be. God, I, I, I stepped into a quarter of my greatness. God, I know you put all these big things inside of me and I did some of them. Like, uh-uh. Like, I keep reminding myself I want to arrive there and be like, I like, like, have nothing left. <laughs> be like I gave it my all. And so I've flipped my mindset into, mm -hmm. okay, rejection, rejection, boom, boom. I don't hear it anymore as you're not enough, right? I used mm -hmm. to always hear rejection as a, almost like a reminder of something I wish I didn't believe, which is that I'm not enough. Mm -hmm. And, and that was a really big thing to get over in my life. And so, you know, Part of launching uh, the It Cosmetics, right? Long before it was this, you know, we, we built a team of over a thousand employees, became the largest, number one luxury makeup company in the country in the United States. All these things happen. A lot of people just know that part. But the real journey is a girl who literally, I started believing I wasn't enough. And mm -hmm. I, I tried to enter this beauty industry to change the conversation and help everyone feel like, oh, wait you are enough. Mm -hmm. And let's try to shift the conversation around that. But the journey was filled with so many rejections. And, you know, to talk about, I don't even know how I could pick one. There were so, so many. And here's the thing is, is so many of the people that, that rejected me along the way were who I would consider experts, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's so easy to put experts on this pedestal and be like, well, if they're telling me I don't have what it takes or they're saying I'm not going to succeed, like it's very hard not to let those words of rejection turn into self-doubt in our own heads. And so on my journey, uh, you know, of, of sending the product out to all these retailers, and I really believed in it. And um, uh, two quick rejections that stand out. One was... Um, one was after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rejections from, from every retailer out there. We, we got a phone call from a potential investor who's a big private equity company, um, and they got in a hold of our product and loved the product and wanted to have a meeting. And I was so excited, Craig, because I thought, oh, my gosh, they've taken so many of these unknown brands and made them into huge uh, consumer product companies that we all shop for in grocery stores and know of. And I thought if they invest, then A, I won't go bankrupt. And B, maybe they can use their leverage to get us into all of these retailers that, that keep telling me no. Um, and so we did all the meetings, meeting after meeting after meeting. We entered the diligence phase, right, which is when they start looking into all of our financial projections, our future product pipeline. And it came down to the final meeting, and my husband and I flew up for it. And um, the head guy at the private equity company, he was really kind. His whole team was awesome. Um, and at the end, he says to me, and by the way, this is now after a couple years and hundreds of rejections, right? So we're, we're at that under $1,000 in our bank account, maybe going bankrupt to any moment situation. And he, we're in person, and he was about three feet from me. 
and he says to me, um, you know, congratulations. You know, we, we really believe in your product. It's a great product, uh, but it's a no. We're going to pass on investing in it cosmetics. And I was just like, oh, like devastated, right? And I was like, okay. But I was so used to hearing no at this point. And I said, well, can you tell me why? Because um, feedback is usually a gift. Um, I said, can you tell me why? And he got really quiet and there was a long pause. And he says, um, do you want me to be really honest with you? And I'm like, yes, please. And he says, I just don't think women will buy makeup from someone who looks like you with your body and your weight. Hmm. And I remember when he said those words, um, well, first of all, it was like a lifetime of body doubt, self-doubt, like flooded my mm. whole body. And, 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 and I never actually felt any anger toward him or anything like that. But I remember one moment that I just want to call this out because I feel like these are the moments and we all have them. We've all had someone look at us and tell us we're not enough for whatever version of rejection we've faced. And sometimes it's someone in our family who loves us and just doesn't see our dream. Sometimes it's a partner. Sometimes it's in business, but we've all had these moments. And, 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 and what I'll never forget, Craig, literally like it was yesterday is when he was saying those words to my face, he says, I just don't think women will buy makeup from someone who looks like you with your body and your weight. I got this feeling deep down in like the pit of my stomach um, that said he's wrong. Like I felt it. I felt it um, so strongly. And I still went out in my car and cried. I still all those things. And for many years, um, you know, when I would hear those words, you know how we hear the words sometimes that someone says to us that hurt. I would mm -hmm. like imagine myself turning down the volume on them and, and turning the volume up and that feeling I had, mm. um, which I realized is a, is, is a knowing. It's an intuition. It's a mm -hmm. still small voice. It's God telling us, you know, oh, he's telling you no, but I'm giving you a knowing, mm. right? It's that knowing we have mm -hmm. inside. And I believe our life comes down to the moments when we trust our knowing mm -hmm. over the nose, mm. our knowing over what we can't see in front of us, what, what, what looks like, you know, is it going to happen or, mm -hmm. or, or is it going to come to pass or is it, you know what I mean? And, and, right. and, and by the way, six years later, <laughs> six years later, um, and I'm skipping over so many things, but six years later, uh, when L'Oreal bought this little tiny company I started in my living room, uh, for $1.2 billion cash. And it was their largest, uh, acquisition in the U S and U S history for them. Um, they made me the first woman to hold a CEO title in their 100-plus mm -hmm. year history of any brand. And it was a whole thing. So it was on the homepage of the Wall Street Journal the day that it happened um, online. And and that's when I heard from that investor for the first time. And uh, he said, congratulations. I hadn't heard from him in six years. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, congratulations. Uh, I was wrong. Yes. Um, I'm so happy and, for you. And you're so much politer than I am because I would have said to him, and I'll give you 1.2 billion reasons why you're wrong. <laughs> I, that's that just, so much. I, I don't I don't recommend that anyone else says that, but I just that's <laughs> just like so that, good. Yeah, we, we don't want to rub it in his face, but I, I want to dig into something that you said because I think it's really important, and it'll be a little bit complicated to get this question out. But do you, do you ever watch Shark Tank? Yes, I have. Yes. Okay, so so do you know that there are times when there's an entrepreneur that has an idea, and the sharks are kind of giving them advice, and you can kind of tell it's good advice and the entrepreneurs not really listening, and they're kind of digging in and not, not listening. How do you know the difference between when someone pushes back and you're like, no, I know I'm right, 
and you're actually not. They're actually giving you good advice, you're not listening, versus when there's something inside of you that you actually are right. Because in any great leadership story, intuition, discernment, that knowing, it's really, it's something important, it's incredibly, indescribably important, and it's really hard to teach. Can you help us, because I'm, I'm sure someone right now, there might be getting some advice or some pushback, and the advice might be really good and they need to listen, or it might be really wrong. How, how do you know the difference? Yes, that's such a good point. So yeah, because I've had so many, so many rejections, right? In every single rejection, even though it often hurt, I considered everything they said, right? So when he said no uh, in the investor case, I was like, well, can you tell me why? Um, I want to hear, I want to hear the feedback always. And because I think often there is so much value in that feedback. Um, And I think, you know, for me, I love to just get still, pray about it and say what truly feels right. Um, And for me, I think, and I think this is important for everyone, building that muscle of intuition or discernment um, over what's right or wrong is so, so important, right? I think, um, you know, one thing that's coming to mind is, you know, from the time we're a little kid, we can walk into a room and kind of feel like, were they talking about me? Or we kind of feel if our mom or dad is, is not happy. And when we say, how are you? And they say, we're fine. You start to dull your own ability of hearing, of, of trusting that discernment, mm-hmm. right? And we go through our whole lives with, um, without ever really being taught, how do you hear your own intuition? How do you, mm-hmm. how do you have discernment? And so one of the things that I do for anyone looking to kind of build that muscle of intuition, because I think it's a muscle that we build over time and I think it's a lifelong journey. And I think as a leader, it is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, you said something once, I heard you say it was so powerful um, that when we do something that offends everyone the least, it's often not the most effective thing as mm-hmm. a leader, right? Mm-hmm. I would also say when we lead by consensus, it's often mm-hmm. not the most effective decision. Exactly. Yep. And I think, yeah, for anyone in a position of leadership, really learning how to turn down the volume on all the noise and listen to your intuition mm-hmm. Um I believe it's so powerful. One of the things I do often is I take some time, um, and this is for anyone looking to build build their muscle of intuition. I think back to times in my life where I just knew I was right. I had a gut feeling, but I didn't listen to it. Uh And I think about what happened then in those cases. And by the way, these could be simple things like I was dating a guy and he said his phone broke. <laughs> like, or, I right. mean, and you know his phone didn't break, but you're like, oh, but you're in love. And you're like, oh, but maybe it broke and whatever, right? All of these, we have hundreds of thousands of moments like this in our lives or, or we're with a group of friends and we just feel like something is wrong um, or someone is hurt, is hurting. And they're like, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And, and we look back and, and we learn later, oh, they were. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, or on the flip side, we, we, um, you know, times we've trusted ourselves and times we haven't and what happened when we did in both mm-hmm. occasions. And the more we reflect on those, the more we're able to build our muscle of intuition over time and, yep. and really learn to trust ourselves. And what I want to say is I believe that I truly, truly believe when we are on our, our true path and our true calling and our true journey, that every time you trust yourself in a decision, even if it turns out wrong, mm-hmm. it was the right move. Mm-hmm. Every time. 
I believe every time you trust yourself, even when it turns out to be wrong, I believe it was part of your destiny to learn that experience and to learn that calling. So it was still the right decision to trust yourself and you're still building that muscle. And when I think back, like two big things stand out to me that were life-changing and company-changing and industry-changing that all came down to me trusting my intuition or my discernment. And you know, when we, after years and years of no's, and after me finally getting the head of all of QVC, he built this billion dollar beauty industry, finally got him on the phone, Alan Burke, and, and he told me definitively, you are not the right fit for QVC uh -huh. or for our customers. It's a no, and I wish you the best. And, it, you know, all this stuff. After years of this, I finally got this one shot on QVC, which meant um, I was going to get it. You know, we were still, by the way, Craig, just selling two to three orders a day on our website. Uh -huh. I was going to get this one shot live on television in front of 100 million homes to sell our product, um, uh, which was our concealer. And I learned that I would have 10 minutes, get this one shot, and I'd have to sell over 6,000 units of our mm. concealer to hit their sales goal uh, in a 10-minute window. Mm. Um, and Because that's how much you sell there. And I'm like, okay. And all the things. And I was so excited. And um, then I learned it was consignment. It was a consignment offer. And what that meant was we had to somehow figure out how to pay for, manufacture, pass all of mm. their legal and quality control, everything, get all the inventory to them, still having not getting paid. Uh -huh. And then we would only be paid for whatever sold in that 10 minute window. And if we didn't hit sales goals, everything would be shipped back, which in our case meant we would go out that's of business. A, that's and a make so, or break. Yeah. Make or break yep. big time. And it ended up coming down to this huge moment of intuition for me. And you know, we had uh -huh. um, applied for SBA loans. We couldn't afford to do this. So we applied uh -huh. for SBA loans. 22 banks said no. The 23rd bank, which was California Bank and Trust, uh, I don't know what they were thinking, but they said yes. <laughs> they, gave us, they gave us a loan for just the amount to cover the purchase order uh -huh. for our shot on QVC. And it all came down to this make or break moment, right? And these are, again, the moments I think that... Um, define our destiny. Mm -hmm, we we mm -hmm. hired third-party consultants that, that help a lot of people sell on television and in stores. And mm -hmm. here's what happened is they all told me the same thing. They said, if you want a shot at succeeding, uh, if you, if you want to hit these sales goals, here's what you need to do. You need to have this type of model, which was uh, all uh, uh, girls with flawless skin, mm -hmm. same skin tone, same age. You need to produce your 10-minute segment this way, and I said to them, and this goes back to our talk on authenticity, um, but also in, in intuition, I, I would say to them, okay, but like, that's not my why. My why that I created this product was to change everything you're telling me to do. Like my why is, 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 you know, what, and I'd say, what if I, I take my own makeup off and show my bright red rosacea and I could prove live on TV that the product's so good that it works. And what if I put models in their seventies and eighties and, and, you know, teenagers dealing with acne and, and just all real people. And they were mortified. Hmm. And, and here's the thing is they wanted me to win, right? They really wanted me to win. And they were giving me the best advice they knew how, which is if you want to succeed, here's what we believe you need to do. And I just want to call this out really fast, Craig. True leaders have novel ideas. Uh -huh. True leader, and most leaders are scared to act on them, <laughs> but true right. leaders have novel ideas. And here's what I've learned. If you're doing anything novel, 
anything novel, by definition, or anything authentic for that matter, there's only one of you. So if you're doing anything authentic, by definition, it's never been done before, mm-hmm. right? And what I believe is there are a lot of experts out there, even though they have elements of being a visionary, there are a lot of experts that subconsciously cannot believe something's going to succeed unless they've already seen it succeed before, unless there's already social proof in their mind that it's, that it's succeeded before. And had I learned that lesson, I would have saved myself so many nights crying myself to sleep because so many of these people that rejected me that said it would never work, they didn't mean any harm. It wasn't personal. They, were, they just believed based on their own life's experience that what I was doing, which was novel, wasn't going to work. And I don't think they realized um, that, you know, because I think a lot of them believe they're visionaries. My whole point is don't take it (laughs) personal if people don't see your vision or your dream, especially Mm -hmm. if you are doing something that's never been done before. Mm -hmm. Um, Because most people cheer you on after you've made it. Right. Right. So we got the big idea, the, the, the big, you know, one shot on QVC. And, um, and so uh, all these experts were telling me what, what to do. And uh, here's the thing is I, was, I found myself in this moment um, where I was tempted to challenge my own integrity. Mm. And I was tempted to uh, do something inauthentically. Mm-hmm. I was in this spot where I was like, oh my gosh, we have one shot. Mm-hmm. And if this doesn't work, we're done. And my dream is so big. I want to change this industry so badly, but like it hasn't worked yet. Everyone's told me no so far, hundreds of no's. Now I get this one shot and I sat there and I drove. So I flew to QVC, which is in Pennsylvania. I drove to their parking lot in this rental car and I sat there every day for a week leading up to our one big shot on the Mm -hmm. air. And I just sat alone in the parking lot, just like watching the front door, which sounds really weird. But everything I was going through felt so heavy Mm. for me because it was like all in the line. Mm -hmm. And I just remember sitting there praying, asking God to take it from me because it felt so heavy and just trying to figure out what to do because I was like, okay, well, maybe if I do it their way and it works, then I'll make some money and then I could do it my way. Like I had all these thoughts. And there is this moment, and I know, I know that, you know, you can't fake authenticity. Mm-hmm. I know that if I were to show up on air and show models with perfect skin, like, like I believe this. I write about this in my book, Believe It, a lot, because I think that this will take an entrepreneur down faster than anything. Sure. That authenticity alone doesn't automatically guarantee success, mm-hmm. but inauthenticity guarantees failure. And I've seen that play out now thousands of times. But when we're in the moment, when everything's on the line, that's when it's really hard to have discernment. And I remember sitting in that car, crying, praying, just feeling like it was so heavy. And I had this moment where I thought, who is our customer? Who Like, like I'm about to go live in front of 100 million homes on television. And I just thought, like, if someone's going to turn that television on, and bless me with a few precious seconds of their time, you know, what is it I want to stand for? Mm-hmm. And I, for whatever reason, I kept imagining a single mom in Nebraska folding laundry, like who was too busy to remember that she mattered, that she's beautiful. And I just had this moment in that car where I thought, if she's going to turn that television on and see me for three seconds, 
Like, I don't care if she doesn't even buy anything. I'd rather have her see me showing women who look like her, like calling them beautiful and meaning it. And I'd rather stand for that than sell a whole bunch of product and stand for nothing. And so I knew what I had to do, but I was scared, like scared. And I walked into that building and this was September of 2010. We had one shot, 10 minutes. And I remember like walking in and I showed, I had, I had written out, I think you and I are this way a little bit. I had, I was like so prepared for this. I had written out my whole 10 minute segment by the second. I was like, so prepared and and we you get a host meeting um a few minutes before your show and i showed the host and i'm like here's what i'd like to do and she she took one glance at it threw it out she's like thank you sugar but here's what we're gonna do and i was like freaking out right and i was like i can't get an argument right now because i gotta just trust and i gotta pray (laughs) and um i remember walking out to the studio and uh there's all the cameras and then there's the big clocks on the ground and i Mm. saw the 10 minute counter and I knew, um, I knew I was like, okay, I have 10 minutes. Then I learned you're not even guaranteed the 10 minutes. If wow. I go live and we're like a minute or two into the cell and I'm not hitting numbers, you you might think you have eight minutes left and boom, in a second, your clock goes down to two minutes or one minute wow. and you know, you're like <laughs> done. And so much pressure. So in that moment, um, I remember the, the 10 minute, uh, the, the camera lights turned on the on air, the big on air lights. And I knew I was live in front of a hundred million homes. I saw the clock. It was like nine fifty nine, nine fifty eight, And I was just like, and, and the host was amazing by the way. And, and I tried to do this demonstration on my wrist. I'd practiced a thousand times in my bathroom showing how our concealer doesn't crease compared to the other two. And when you bend your wrist and I was trying to do it, but I, but, and I wasn't nervous for television. It was, I was nervous because I didn't want to go bankrupt. And so my oh, hand was shaking so bad and I couldn't even do the demonstration. And the host grabbed my hand and pushed it under the podium. And she's like, thank wow. you, sugar. And she took off and she took over. And, um, I remember the moment my bright red bare face before shot came up on TV. And I remember walking over to the models, all different skin tones and, and ages and sizes and, and uh, calling them beautiful and meaning it. And I didn't know what was going on, Craig. I was a hot mess. I was sweating profusely and I had on two mm. double spanks, two pairs of spanks. And you were not because I you care how I look, because you're... I was trying to absorb the sweat. <laughs> I was so nervous. <laughs> and, um, and I didn't know and what how happened we were doing with sales that day. So we were, I didn't know how we were doing, but they didn't cut me. And there was about a minute left. And I heard the host say, the deep shade's almost gone. The, 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 the tan shade's almost uh, sold out. And then literally right at the 10 minute mark, the giant sold out sign came up across the screen. Hmm. Um, and they cut and went to like Dyson vacuum or something or Vitamix. And I started crying hmm. on national TV. And hmm. my, my husband came running through the double doors of the studio and, and I was like, real women have spoken. And he's like, we're not going bankrupt. And, um, and that, so that one amazing. airing turned into five that year, 101 the next year, uh, eventually over 250 live shows a year. We built the biggest beauty brand in QVC's history. And it is right now mm. at this moment. And don't you, um, hold the, don't you hold the record for the biggest, uh, biggest sales? We might, yeah, for like a single day. Yeah, there's a lot of days yeah. we would do $10 million yeah. sales in a day, um, over 200 million sales uh. in a year there in that one account. And um, and then we have, and I was doing, I've done over a thousand live shows myself there. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, part of 
maybe this is a part two conversation, but part of building a business to exit or to uh, not to avoid burnout, all those other things is I eventually had to um, scale a big team, right? We hired to over a thousand mm-hmm. employees. And after doing a thousand live shows myself while trying to do all the other jobs as well, um, I ended up, I was working hundred hour weeks for years and mm-hmm. totally addicted to work, which is a whole nother topic that I know you and I share in common. Um, mm-hmm. Went through whole seasons of burnout, um, which is a whole nother thing, which is part of why we eventually sold, chose to sell the business. Um, but in the, in the process, uh, just to wrap up that story, two things. We eventually got yeses from all the stores that told us no um, and became top brands in, in those stores. And then the guy, Alan Burke, who who told me, no, you'll never, you're not right for QVC or for our customers. Um, he was their, their head of beauty there. After we eventually got that one shot and launched on QVC, he became um, a dear friend and a, a mentor, one of the greatest mentors in my life. And he still is to this day. Um, and then after he retired from QVC, we hired him in a paid position on our advisory board at cosmetics. So the guy that had mm. rejected me was now yeah. working for me. Right. And it's like, when what I think of those story. moments, I'm like, no one can tell you your dream is too yeah. big. Like, like, no. <laughs> and he was, he was just happy to be on your train at that point. So he, uh, it's a great story. I, I want to highlight a couple things he said. It's, it's, because it's too good to pass up. And then I want to make this interview really hard for you in just a minute. So hang on, I'm going to give, it's going to get challenging, but with a purpose. Two things that I want to highlight, you said authenticity doesn't guarantee success, but inauthenticity guarantees failure. It's so powerful. And I just want every leader to let that sink in. And then I love the imagery that you gave, kind of the metaphors, Jamie, turn down the volume. Sometimes when there's too much outside noise, outside criticism, outside rejection, even just advice that might even be good, turn that down. And I love the, I haven't heard it described this way, but develop the muscle of intuition. And again, this is so important. And for example, in what I lead, there's probably one to two times-ish a year when I intuit or discern something that needs to change. And it's not like twice a week, it's one or two times a year where it's a big discernment and it's usually before, it's initiative, it's something that needs to be different. And in any great leadership story, you you have to discern it, you have to act on it. And the more you act on it, the more you're developing that muscle and you're more confident, confident you become in it. So I just wanna tell the leaders, like you said, follow that discernment, build the muscle. I want to make it a little bit difficult on you, and because I want to cover a lot of gra- or I want to cover some important stuff, I'm going to ask you to try to keep your answers to like one or two words, one or two sentences, to drill down okay. on a few things. Uh, you built this. You didn't build this. You had a team that helped you build it. You brought on a thousand people, and you had great people. In a, f- a word, a few words, a couple of sentences. What qualities do you look for when you're adding great people to your team? Congruency of mission. Mm-hmm. Congruency of mission. I, um, I think this is really important. How I was able to replace myself on QVC and have I hired three other people to carry a $200 million account. I didn't hire TV salespeople like most people do. I hired three women who authentically authentically had their life changed by the product. And then I had them shadow me for a few years, taught them sales and taught them television. So Mm -hmm. in that one example, 
it was congruency and authenticity and mission and a belief that I think was the most powerful thing. That's helpful. When, when you're creating a culture, how important is a culture to your business? <laughs> you know the, the, the uh, scripture without vision, people perish? Mm-hmm. It is so important. More than ever, people need to know why they're doing what they're doing. And I think a big part of the great resignation and all the things happening in society right now is it's easy as a leader to forget that your team may not truly know why they're doing what they're doing for you and with Mm. you. Mm -hmm. Um, Craig, we had these little cutouts, like literally paper cutouts that had our why in the middle and it had our customer in the center and it had our four um, pillars of our mission at, at Cosmetics and they were on every person's desk. And I would ask our team whenever they're making a decision, whether it is a product development decision or a hiring decision or a marketing decision that they try to run it through the lens of that image of what matters to us, where we're going, why we're doing what we're doing. Hmm. And I think that's really what unified every, everybody. I don't think people thought their job was just their job. I, I think that they truly realized their job was um, changing the entire beauty industry and, and hmm. healing not enoughness and so many hmm. people affected by it. So good. One more question, then I'm going to go in kind of the lightning round. We'll just fire a bunch at you. Uh, so from uh, all measures, you're incredibly successful. But a lot of people don't succeed when they're successful. Uh, they fall apart. They burn out. It goes to their head. What advice do you have to people who are succeeding to stay successful at what matters most? This is something that I continue to struggle with. To be totally honest, I think that as someone who's always been, I've always felt like God has, has put a great calling in my life. And I, I don't believe we're born to compete with anyone else. I believe we're here to compete with what we know we're capable of becoming. And I struggle every day feeling like I'm nowhere close to becoming the potential God gave me. And so to this day, I have to challenge myself to work less, (laughs) to stop thinking about how I'm going to serve and impact obsessively and actually enjoy my daughter singing to the Elmo song. Um, I need to intentionally be present with my husband at dinner when I am tempted to daydream about creating, building, serving, and impacting and it is a daily struggle for me. So, and I, maybe maybe other people listening can relate to that as well. Um, but it's something that I'm just being really intentional because I can look back and go, okay, I've achieved all of these incredible things that they only write about in movies. And yet the moments that fill my soul the most aren't usually those achievements, right? They're the times when, you know, um, my daughter was born or, you know, I, I help, you know, but, but they're also, let me say this, and maybe you have these moments too. Like just this morning, when I get a letter from someone who says like, I read, believe it, or I, you know, whatever. And, and I decided to trust myself and it worked or things like that. Like those are the moments that fill my soul. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm trying to, um, I am trying to be intentional Mm -hmm. about 
doing both, about being someone who I feel um, is called to serve in a great way, but also mm-hmm. trying to not look back at life and say, gosh, I forgot to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It's so good. And you use the word uh, three or four times, the word intentional. I think anybody who's a high performer like you and the, the vast majority of our community, they're, they're visionaries. They're growing, they're stretching themselves. We don't want to be successful just in the business and not be successful at home. And it's what happens in the home. It's what happens in your heart. That's that's where the true lasting uh, measure of success is. And so congratulations if you can do both. But if we're going to do one, we don't need to sell the business for $1.2 billion and lose everything else that, that matters even more. We want to really be intentional as you are. And, and it's hard. It takes work because when you can do a lot, you tend to want to do a lot. But you don't want to do a lot of what doesn't matter as much as a lot of what does matter most. And I congratulate you and Paulo on um, being great at both, producing great value and staying centered or working to stay centered at the things that matter most. Uh, The name of the book is Believe It, Get It, Believe It. It's incredible. Lightning round. Jamie, I'm going to ask you a bunch of quick questions just for fun. Don't think about it. Just tell me whatever comes to mind. What's your biggest leadership pet peeve? What drives you crazy? Okay, You're thinking think too long. It. Be honest. What drives yeah. me crazy? Yes. What drives you know me what crazy? Yes. Incongruency. Incongruency. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Incongruency. I think when you show up fully authentically is when you're your most powerful. I think your authenticity is your superpower. I think most leaders are scared to be authentic. Before you speak at the Global Leadership Summit or before you go on live with Tony Robbins or John Maxwell, wherever you are, what do you say to yourself right before you give a talk? God, use me. Love, use me. Love it. What is a recent discipline or habit that you've added to your life that you're excited about? 4.30 a.m. wake-ups. Ah, <laughs> let's go. That's still time in the morning. That still time has is, ah. is, um, been healing and also just inspiring. I wonder what percentage of the highest performers actually have a very early wake-up time. I don't know what that is, but I'm guessing it's pretty high. That time in the morning is very important to me. And uh, I think that's true for a lot of leaders. Is there a favorite book that you've read recently? I'm reading The Way of Integrity right now with Martha Mm. Beck, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Also about congruency with your truth, which is really powerful. Um, Mm. Love that one. I'm reading Mm -hmm. so many books. You know what happens when you write a book? Like Believe It came out, now, all of a sudden, everyone wants me to read their books to give an endorsement. I'm like, there's so many books, um, but it's really fun. So right. actually, I should change my answer. Believe it. Believe it. How to go from underestimated to unstoppable. <laughs> it is. Well, I do, I do want to congratulate you on the book hitting New York Times bestseller. And, yeah. and it's really fun to see that your influence is increasing every single day. I think your message is one that is so, so, so encouraging. And I just would say... As a student of leadership, thank you for every single sacrifice that you made, every rejection that you endured, every obstacle that you overcame to give us a story that we can both applaud and just learn from because it's it's thousands upon thousands of lessons. And the great thing is when you were um, a waitress at Denny's or sacking groceries, that was preparation. When you were building your business, interestingly enough, that was preparation. When you sold it and became the first female CEO um, for L'Oreal, that was preparation for what you're doing today, which is an even bigger influence. And what you're doing today is preparing you for what you're going to do in the years to come. And so I just love being a fan, cheering you on, and um, 
congratulate you on a, a life that really is making a difference, Jamie. Oh, thank you so much. All of those things back to you. And I've, uh, I think I shared this on stage, actually, Global Leadership Summit, but I just am so grateful for you. And I feel like you inspire so many people and leaders to feel less alone and more enough. Um, mm. And that is so powerful. That is so powerful. Yeah, and you. you do that for me as well. And so I just want to say thank you mm. so much, Craig. Well, I can't wait to hear the stories that come on the other side of this podcast as you speak to the hearts of so many uh, leaders out there. If you um, want to find out more about Jamie, your website, where, pe- where should people go? Uh, sure. Yeah. JamieKernLima.com. And I'm on Instagram, JamieKernLima and all those great things. Or just on Craig's Instagram, liking all his posts. One of those spots. There you go. I will, uh, <laughs> I'll, post, I'll post on you and try to get as many people to hear your great content. If you are new with us to the Craig Rochelle Leadership Podcast, we f- post a new episode on the first Thursday of each month. I want to give a little shout out to some people who are posting um, about the podcast. Thank you to Bridget Dodson, Jaden Darrow, Um, Abby Gibson and Chris O'Dell, thank you for sharing on social media. If this is helpful to you and you want to invite others to be a part, that would mean the world to me. Uh, We do have a leader guide which summarizes all of the content and the amazing quotes uh, that Jamie shared today. You can go to life.church slash leadership podcast. Click on the link and we'll send you that uh, every time that we uh, release an episode. Thank you um, in a big way, Jamie, for your investment in us. And uh, I want to tell our community, thank you for being a part and investing in your leadership, because we know that everyone wins when the leader gets better.